At Gospel Community Church, our mission is to know the Bible, share life with others, and bring hope to our city and the world. You're listening to the Gospel Community Church Sermons Podcast, where we go through books of the Bible, verse by verse and line by line, to hear the truth that God's Word has to encourage, discipline, and bless us in our daily lives. Thanks for listening. Feel free to share the contents of this podcast, but please do not alter it in any way without permission. Please like, follow, and subscribe to us on Facebook or iTunes. Visit gospelcc.com for more content like this. At Gospel Community Church, our mission is to know the Bible, share life with others, and bring hope to our city and the world. Thanks again and have a blessed day. Throughout my life, uh, I've spent a lot of time on the stage. Uh, Obviously, I preach every week uh, from the stage, but uh, my family and I were also involved in uh, community theater, uh, and so I've spent a lot of time on the stage. We did shows like Oklahoma, Guys and Dolls, Oliver, Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat, uh, just to name a few. And throughout those shows, we, we did everything from acting on the stage to uh, building the sets and, and being behind the scenes. Uh, you see, in film and in theater, the costumes and the sets are a huge part of the unfolding of the story, uh, but we don't often think about the things in the background. See, every time that we did a play, um, when it would come time for the curtain call, the lead actors would come out on the stage and everybody would go wild. But then the behind the scenes people would come up on the stage and it would be like, you know, crickets. You know, they, they forgot about how important the behind-the-scenes people were, the people working that you can't really see. I mean, those are the people that really make a film. Those are the people that really make uh, a play production. Let me just, uh, you know, explain this. What, what would Star Wars be without the special effects, right? We, we want to see the Death Star explode, don't we? Like, how lame would it be if it was like, hey, remember that time the Death Star exploded, you know? We, we want to see it explode, right? And, and all of that, like, we know the actors in the film, but, like, who did the special effects? Well, maybe some of you are nerdy enough to know, but I'm not. So what would Lord of the Rings be without the Shire, right? The hobbits live in the Shire. And it's like somebody had to go and build that set, and I have no idea who did that, but, it's, but that, like, the, the Shire in the Lord of the Rings almost becomes its own character. It's the behind-the-scenes thing. And okay, so now I've, like, gave two nerdy references. Let me come back over here. What about Tombstone, okay? The, the shoot, if I've lost you with the nerdy ones, here's this one. The shootout at the OK Corral, what would that be without the OK Corral? Somebody had to go and build the corral, right? So who did that? Well, I have no idea. But it, but it wouldn't be that scene if it, if it didn't have those things. So I submit to you that the behind-the-scenes people are actually more important than the actors because they provide the platform from which the actors speak. Now, At this point, you might be thinking, wow, that's a very interesting perspective, and we appreciate your critical commentary on theater and film. Please get on with the Bible teaching. Stay with me. The behind the scenes is what is incredibly important. 
as I look back at my life, I see the most significant things happened behind the scenes, unknown to me, unseen. I could give you reference after reference after reference at how the behind the scenes things in my life ended up being the most significant. I'll give you one. Back in 1997, around 1997, this would have been when Saved by the Bell was still cool. It's not? No. Um, back around 1997, my family was looking for a church uh, to, to take us to. Now, we lived in Henry County, and I went back and did the research. There were literally hundreds uh, of churches to choose from. And so it is a seemingly insignificant choice, the church, the specific church that my parents selected. See, I often say it doesn't matter what church you go to as long as they have solid theology, preach the Bible, and love Jesus, and you're committed, right? Does, doesn't really matter. Just pick a church that's got good theology, that loves Jesus, and go there. So this is a seemingly insignificant choice, the church that we went to. You see, but this church that we went to had a crazy youth pastor in it. Like, this guy was nuts. He was crazy enough to empower me to do ministry. He was crazy enough to hire me as the youth pastor's assistant when I turned 16, which set me on a course and trajectory of lifelong ministry, which brings me here today. You're, you're sitting in the seats that you're sitting in because of a behind-the-scenes choice that my parents made back in 1997. Let me continue on further. As I was there at said church, a beautiful young woman just happened to fall desperately in love with me. <laughs> and I'm now married to that woman because of a behind-the-scenes choice that my parents made back in 1997, and we now have two daughters today who wouldn't exist if it weren't for that one seemingly insignificant choice. It almost seems like someone was working behind the scenes to bring all of that about. It's, it's almost like the notes that were played formed this symphony, and symphonies don't just happen. So you can call it a coincidence all you want to, and if you say all oh, that's a coincidence, I, I, I just have to call baloney on that. It, there, there have been too many things that have happened. There have been too many circumstances, too many, you know, Dots that were dotted and T's that were crossed and, and things fell, just fell into place. You see, things don't just fall into place. There's someone working behind the scenes to bring all of this about. Someone was working behind the scenes for his glory and for my good. It is clear. It is clear because the coincidences are just stacked up and therefore they're not coincidences. There have been too many occasions in my life where the stage has been clearly set by the behind-the-scenes people, and I just walked out onto it. So, who has been working behind the scenes? Church family, if you're taking notes, jot this down. God's sovereign hand has been working behind the scenes to bring about His glory and your good, and that same hand is still at work today. Oftentimes it's unknown. Most of the time we can't see it. But God's hand is at work in our lives behind the scenes. This means that we Christians above all people should be filled with hope for the future. Don't you see when God is working behind the scenes, we know that God is at work whether we see it, whether we feel it. 
when God is at work behind the scenes working for his glory and our good, that means we can be hopeful for the future. That even if we see the storm clouds raging, even if the waves are crashing in on top of us, we can still have hope because God is going to bring beauty out of ashes. Because God is a God who can still the storm. And so we have hope in the future because God is silently behind the scenes working. And this is good news. And so my hope this morning for this sermon is this, let your heart be overwhelmed with hopefulness. I've been, I've been praying for you all week that your hearts will be overwhelmed with hopefulness. Hopefulness because God is at work in every situation for his glory and for our good. Amen? Amen. Go ahead and turn in your Bibles to 1 Samuel. We've been traveling through this book and we find ourselves in chapter 2. Go ahead and pull up chapter 2 and Put your eyes on verse 11 as we, as we begin. We know that um, Hannah, barren Hannah, had gone before the Lord and, and prayed and asked God for a son. And the um, priest Eli took her to be a drunken woman, though she was not. And she sincerely prayed before the Lord, and God answered her prayer. And because of her gratitude, because of her thankfulness to the Lord for giving her a son, she then dedicated her son Samuel to the Lord and set him in the temple in Shiloh to minister uh, to the Lord. And then they went back to Ramah. And so now everyone is, is wanting to know what's happened with this little boy Samuel. Take a look at verse 11. Then Elkanah went home to Ramah, and the boy, that's Samuel, was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli, the priest. We see that Samuel being set in his place in in the temple dedicated to the Lord is now going about his priestly duties. He's obeying the Lord. He's ministering. It said that he's he was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli. So we have uh, almost like this mentor relationship where Eli is there kind of mentoring this young boy, Samuel, to minister in the temple there in Shiloh. What we're going to see is from this verse 11, we're going to move into uh, verses 12 through 17. And you get this picture of this boy, Samuel, in the temple obeying the Lord. And it's set in sharp contrast to what we see about um, Hophni and Phinehas, the sons of Eli. Let's read 12 through 17 Yet again, now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. The custom of the priests with the people was that when a man offered a sacrifice, the priest servant would come while the meat was boiling with a three-pronged fork in his hand, and he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot, and all that the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. This is what they did at Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. Moreover, before the fat was burned, the priest servant would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, give meat for the priest to roast, for he will not accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. And if a man said to him, let them burn the fat first and then take as much as you wish, he would say, no, you must give it now. And if not, I will take it by force. Thus, the sin of the young men was great in the sight of the Lord, for the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. This begins, verse 12 opens up with, now the sons of Eli were worthless men. It, it calls them worthless men. Now, we've seen this phrase before. If you remember where we are in the history of Israel, we're in the time of the judges. Now, we've heard this word before used in the book of Judges when a group of men in a city 
sexually abused a woman until she died. Those men were called worthless men. It can literally be translated sons of Belial or sons of the devil. And so these men, these two boys, these priests who are in the temple are called worthless men. We found out in chapter 1 that Eli and Hophnius are priests. They're priests. These guys who are called sons of the devil are priests in God's temple. I mean, this is crazy. Just think about this. Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. Listen to this next sentence. They did not know the Lord. They didn't know the Lord. How... We should be asking, how can the priests not know the Lord? That should be a prerequisite, right? That these men handled all of the religious and all of the holy things. They were performing the sacrifices. They had the religious clothing. They said the religious words. They did all of the religious things, yet they didn't know God. Sounds like so many people who live in the South raised in the church, around the church, taken to church by their parents. They've stood and sang the hymns and they've opened their Bibles and they've read along with the pastor, yet they do not know the Lord. We are surrounded with people exactly like this. And maybe they're even amongst us this morning. People who have come close to things that are religious, have come close to things that are holy, have drawn near and have felt the pull, but never have surrendered and fully given themselves over. You see, the reason that Hophni and Phinehas didn't know the Lord is because they had rejected him. And so these boys didn't know the Lord, and this should be shocking, but as we reflect upon it, it's actually not shocking at all because it's a story all too familiar. Phonies and hucksters who are in the place of religious authority who don't really know the Lord is a familiar story that we're used to. Pastors who fleece the flock without shepherding it. Pastors who embezzle money. Pastors who disqualify themselves because they're greedy for their own gain. Sadly, this is a story that's all too common in in my line of work. I hear of pastors like this all of the time who are greedy for their own gain, who exploit the church. And so I ask you, church family, to pray for me and pray for the elders of Gospel Community Church, because we are not impervious to these same failures. Now, there's something interesting happening here. There's, there's stewed meat, there's roasted meat, there's like this three-pronged fork thing, and like we just don't have any idea what's going on here. Well, let me, let's try to break this down a little bit. So um, in Leviticus Uh, chapter 7, there is this provision, there's this rule where priests are allowed to take some of the meat from the sacrifice so that they can eat. Okay, they're there at the temple working, they're there at the temple serving, and so as a way for them to eat food, they were allowed to come and take a part of the sacrifice, the sacrificial meat, but they were only allowed to take a certain part, and those certain parts are laid out in uh, Leviticus chapter 7, For sake of time, we won't go back and read that. But clearly, what's happening in this text is they are exploiting the people of God. Here is the first problem. They're exploiting God's people because they are not supposed to take all that they can scoop up. They're coming with a big giant fork all the way down to the bottom, big old scoop. 
They're exploiting the people of God. They weren't supposed to do that. They were clear and specific parts of the meat that they were supposed to take. Problem number two, they were not doing it themselves. Did you see that in the text? They were sending their servants to do it for them. They were so lazy that they couldn't even exploit the people of God on their own. They had to send somebody else to exploit God's people. So they were taking more than what they were supposed to. They were not even doing it themselves. And the third problem was they were what they were supposed to be giving to the Lord, they were taking by force. Do you see the part in there where, where they come and they say, before you boil the meat, right? We don't want stew tonight. We want uh, a T-bone, okay? We don't want stew tonight. We want, we want sirloin. We, we want the filet mignon. We want the best part, the fattiest part. That's, that's what we want. And, and the, the, you can see the people of Israel protest. You know, wait, 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 wait. Let us burn the fat first. Why was that the request? Well, that was the request because that was the portion that was required for the atonement of sin. They were taking away from the people of God the very channel of their forgiveness before God. They were robbing the people of God, the fatty parts, which were supposed to be burned for the forgiveness of their sins because they wanted to have ribeye. So this is why it says, thus the sin of the young men was great. They were exploiting one of the things that God loves most, which is his people. Church family, if you're taking notes, a church will only rise to the level of the leadership. See, I, oftentimes I get to preach to you, but, to, but today I'm preaching to myself. That this is... This is a sermon, this is a story, this is a section of scripture about people in church leadership who are abusing their authority, who are fleecing the flock, who are exploiting God's people. And this is a warning to me and the leaders and the elders in this church that the sin, their sin was great. A church will only rise to the level of the leadership. You see, a church can't be led where the leader doesn't know which way to go. I can't, I can't preach a great sermon series about how to have deep prayer with God if I'm not in deep prayer with God myself. I can't stand up here before you and with honesty and clarity and, and truthfulness, deep biblical spiritual truthfulness, explain to you what it means to really dive into God's word and apply it to your life if I'm not doing it myself. You see, I don't get to say, uh, you know, just do what I say, but don't do what I do. That's not how this works. As a pastor, I'm held accountable before God about how I lead you. On that last and great day, I will stand before God, and he will look at me, and he will say, Kirk, I gave you and the elders Gospel Community Church. What did you do with it? What did you do with the people that I entrusted to you? Did you serve them with your life, or did you exploit them like Hophni and Phinehas? A church will only rise to the level of the leadership the sad thing is these men were priests and they were exploiting instead of interceding. Let me say that again because this is a great tragedy and you need to feel the weight of this. These priests were exploiting instead of interceding. Okay, let's break this down. In the Old Testament, there are three main offices. There is prophet, there is priest, and there is king. These are the three Old Testament offices. Are you guys still with me? Okay, so these three offices, the kings, well, the kings were just that. They were the rulers over the people. 
Now, the prophets, this is a different role. What the prophet did is the prophet heard from God, and then he would speak to the people on God's behalf. That's what the prophet did. The kings ruled. The prophets heard from God and spoke to the people. But the priests spoke to God on behalf of the people. They interceded for God's people. They would take the sins, the concerns, the woes, the problems of the people, and they would take it to God on the people's behalf, and they would plead before God for the sake of the people. The great tragedy is no one was interceding for the people of God. No one was calling out for their sins. No one was calling out for their woes. No one was begging God for mercy and grace and peace. No one was doing that in this troubled time, in this troubled land. Church family, I want you to know your leadership team, your leadership team has been interceding for you all month long. At our leadership team meeting at the beginning of the month, we sat down and we said, we are going to make prayer a priority this month. And we made up a prayer list for the concerns and the needs of our people. And every week we've been connecting. I could show you the thread, but every single week we have been connecting and praying for you. If you are here at this church and you are new, like you've just been around for the, for the last couple of months, listen to me. The leadership of this church has been interceding for you. If you are here and you are about to have a baby, you have a baby, you got several babies. The leadership of this church has been interceding for you because we believe that it is a part of our job to intercede for our people. And so we have been praying for you. If you are here and you are struggling in a difficult marriage, if you are here and you are suffering with sickness, if you're here and you have a family member who's struggling with cancer, if you're here and you're struggling with infertility, the leadership at Gospel Community Church has been interceding for you all month long. I don't say that to brag on myself. I say that to brag on our leadership team because the deacons, the lead deacons of this church has been crying out to the Lord for you. We've been fasting and praying because when God's people don't have anyone to intercede for them, it is a great, great tragedy. Now, if there ever was a situation where it seemed God was absent, this is it. The only people right, who were showing up to the temple were being exploited. If we know about the time of the judges, this was a time where everyone, you guys know it by now, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. This is the time of the judges. And so the few people that were showing up to the church in Shiloh, showing up to the temple in Shiloh, were being exploited. If there ever was a time to say, where is God? He seems absent. Is God asleep at the wheel? What's happening? If there ever was a time to say that, this is exactly that time. And I wonder if you are feeling that same way this morning. I wonder if deep in your heart you're asking, where is God? What is he doing? Well, friends, I want to again remind you that God is silently working behind the scenes. Take a look at this next section. Samuel was ministering before the Lord, a boy clothed with a linen ephod. And his mother used to make for him a little robe and take it to him each year when she went up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. Then Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife and say, May the Lord give you children by this woman for the petition she asked of the Lord. So then she would return to their home. Indeed, the Lord visited Hannah, and she conceived and bore three sons and two daughters. And the boy Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord. Now, if you would indulge me for just a moment, and let's go back to Tombstone. Uh, if you remember the scene where, 
Wyatt Earp goes into the saloon, and there is the card player. You remember, he's, he's sitting there dealing cards, and he is exploiting the bar owner. He is exploiting the guys who are sitting there playing cards. And so Wyatt Earp walks up to, the guy's name is Johnny Tyler, walks up to Johnny Tyler and says, I just want to let you know you're sitting in my chair. Right? Do you got, you have, you got, has anybody seen this movie? Am I the only one? Okay. So you guys are like staring at me like I'm insane. I know I'm insane, but this is a great movie scene. Okay? So he says, I just want to let you know you're sitting in my chair. And he goes, is that a fact? Right? Wyatt Earp says, that's a fact. Right? So this is a great scene. And he says, you know, for a man that, that don't go healed, like for a man that doesn't have a gun, for a man that don't go healed, you should have run your mouth pretty reckless. And Wyatt Earp responds, no need to go healed to get the bulge on a tub like you. The scene ends with Wyatt Earp slapping this guy and dragging him out of the saloon by his ear and throwing him in the street. So at this point, we read about Eli and his sons, Hophni and Phinehas, and all they're doing in the temple, and we need a Wyatt Earp to go into the temple and look Hophni and Phinehas right in the eye and say, I just want to let you know you're sitting in my chair. And to drag these boys who are exploiting God's people, to drag them right out of the temple and, and by the ear and kick them in the street. We need Wyatt Earp. What do we have? Samuel was ministering before the Lord, a boy clothed with a linen ephod. There's no Wyatt Earp in our text. We have a little boy, a little boy with an ephod. This is, this is a linen apron that he would wear around his waist, a, a religious vestment. It, where's the gunslinging cowboy? Where's the hero riding in to save the day? What we have is a little boy with a linen ephod. The, the sons of Eli are a gang of thugs taking things by force. What can a little boy in an apron do? Well, with God's help, he can do anything, can't he? With, with God's help, this little boy can do anything. This little boy is in the temple ministering faithfully. Ministering faithfully. Faithfulness is what he has. And that's what God needs. Willingness and faithfulness. And God moves and works in mighty and powerful ways. This boy would grow up and go on to anoint the king that would bring peace and stability to all of Israel. If you're taking notes, the Bible teaches us that despite what we think See or feel God is faithful and he is quietly working behind the scenes to bring about his glory and our good. Despite what we see, if anybody in Israel were to be there looking around, asking the question, here's, here's Eli, here's Hophni and Phinehas, here's this crooked priesthood exploiting the temple. Where is God? What's happening? They would look around. You know what they would do? Likely they would look right over the head of little Samuel. Wouldn't even see him. Wouldn't, wouldn't be a blip on the radar. What's God doing? What's happening? And you would want to say, right there, that little boy, that little boy, yes, that little boy right there, that's God's plan. Are you kidding me? No. That right there, God is silently, slowly, but diligently and clearly working behind the scenes in your situation and in your life to bring about his glory and to bring about our good, this is a dark, dark day in Israel, but God was on the move. Little Samuel was on the rise. Even though he was overlooked, 
even though people would not have noticed him, God was still working. Again, if you're taking notes, the Bible teaches us that we work with the silent hand of God when we are faithful in our mundane tasks. He's a little boy. He has his linen ephod. He's going about his daily tasks. What's Hannah doing? Well, Hannah's going up yearly, isn't she? Every year, she's going to Shiloh. She's worshiping the Lord. What she do after that? Well, she goes home. She does laundry. She cooks. She goes about her work. She's a wife to her husband. She has children. That's it. That's what she does. But wait a second. That's way too small for God to use. Aren't you supposed to do something big, extreme, get on a plane and fly to China and become a missionary or something like that? Maybe you should. But what we see here in this text is God working in the mundane. A simple, I mean, just look at it. Eli would bless Alkanah. Indeed, the Lord visited Hannah. She conceived and bore sons and two daughters. That's what happened. Every year they go up to Shiloh. They worship the Lord. She goes back home. She's a wife. She's a mother. Every year they go back up. They come back. It's mundane. It's simple. This is, here's what this means for us. This means that our service to God, however small or insignificant we feel it is, is of monumental importance because God is behind the scenes at work in our work. God is working in our work. Don't, don't, don't you get that? So it means when you show up in the back and you teach the gospel to those little kids, you know how huge that work is? It's not, it's not because you, you, you're such a great teacher to the little kids, but it's because God is working in your work. When you hold the door open for people who come in, when you fix a cup of coffee for somebody, if you're back there in the tech booth pressing buttons, organizing the service, even though those little mundane things seem so small, know that God is working in your work. He's behind the scenes orchestrating this great and beautiful story to redeem all of history and bring all of his people to himself. Is Gospel Community Church a mega church? Nope, but God does not need a mega church to do a mega work. Can he? Yes, he does it all the time. There are mega churches out there that are loving God, seeing people saved and baptized. But our work is no less significant. See, don't you understand that God used 12 uneducated hillbillies from the mountain country of Galilee to unleash his Holy Spirit on the entire world? That's what God used, which means for us, a bunch of rednecks in Georgia, we got a shot. We got a shot to be used by God. So let us turn back to the text before I spin out of control. Now, verse 22. The question at this point is, what is Eli going to do about Hophni and Phinehas? Eli has, has been this strange character. Um, he's the high priest, and he's blessing Elkanah and Hannah, but we also saw him get really confused about what prayer is when Hannah was sincerely praying in the temple. Eli thought that she was a drunken woman. So we're kind of trying to figure out, is this a godly man? Is this not a godly man? What, what's happening with this guy? Let's take a look at what he does here. Now, Eli was very old. And he kept hearing all these things that his son were doing to Israel and how they lay with the women <coughs> who were serving at the entrance to the tent of meeting. And he said to them, why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings from all the people. 
No, my sons, it is no good report that I hear the people of the Lord spreading abroad. If someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. Listen to this. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But they would not listen to the voice of their father, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. Now the boy Samuel continued to grow both in stature and in favor with the Lord, also with man. I think we have to give Eli credit where credit is due. First, he confronts them. Many parents, not wishing to upset their child, often refuse to confront evil behavior. Eli takes the first right step, which is confronting his kids. In addition, he calls evil what's evil. He says what they're doing is wrong. He says, uh, for I hear of your evil dealings. He calls their works evil. In, in addition, in verse 24, no, my sons, it is no good report. What you're doing is evil. What you're doing is wrong. What you're doing is bad. But we must give him credit where credit is due. But just like the other instances where we see Eli... He seems to shirk the rest of his responsibility. He doesn't call them to repent. He says, why are you guys doing this? He doesn't say, you need to repent before God kills you. In addition, he is the high priest and has the authority to remove them from the priesthood, yet he leaves them where they are and lets them continue on doing this. And we're going to learn in just a minute that it seems like Eli is even eating some of the food that these boys are stealing. So he simply does not go far enough. And we see at the very end of this little section, but they would not listen to the voice of their father. We need to think very carefully about this next statement. They would not listen to the voice of their father, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. I wonder what you think about that statement, that, it, that God had decided to kill them for their evil and wicked deeds. What had these boys really done? Well, uh, they had taken stuff that wasn't theirs. They had taken stuff that belonged to God. Anyone ever not given God the full 10% of what they earned? Uh, in addition, it, it says that they were sleeping with the women that were serving to the entrance of the tent of meeting. Anyone in the room can say they have been 110% sexually pure in their actions and in their thoughts? What had these boys really done? So by looking at this statement, you might think that's not fair. That might be your first reaction. That's not fair for God to do that. What, what had these boys really done? And if we think that, if, if that is our first reaction to say that's not fair, then I would submit to you that we severely underestimate how much God hates sin. If that is our reaction to say, well, that's not fair for God to condemn these boys to death, we have underestimated God's holiness and we have underestimated, most importantly, God's authority. 
To those who think God's judgment to kill is unfair, you have missed the fact that the creator God has the right to judge his creation for their evil. If you're taking notes, God has the right to judge his creation for their evil. It's a, it's a statement or a phrase we love to throw around. You can't judge me. God says, yes, I can. I own you. I built the world. I spoke the universe into existence. You are mine, and these are my laws, and I require you follow them. God has the right. You see, the fact that these guys are still breathing is a part of God's grace. They had been given countless chances to get right before God, but they had refused. Imagine them going up to the temple time and time again and performing sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice. How many times did they have to turn, to turn to God and to give themselves to God, but they refused. And so God said, enough, enough. Friend, I submit to you this morning, you do not want what is fair. You want grace. This is something that my daughter says to me all the time. Daddy, that's not fair, right? Can we go to the store and get me a slushie? She likes these little frozen drinks. And we go, no, Lydia, we're not going to the store. That's not fair, right? And I often respond, you don't want fair. You don't want fair. You want grace. You want grace. Now, let's be clear about what's happening In this text, God is silently working to bring to an end this corrupt priesthood. When God says, uh, I've decided to kill Hophni and Phinehas for their evil deeds, he's saying their lives are going to end, and I'm going to get rid of this evil priesthood and bring in a new one. God does not allow his people to be exploited without punishment forever. God does not and will not allow this. So let's see what happens next as the story continues to unfold. Are you guys enjoying 1 Samuel so far? And there came a man of God to Eli and said to him, now we kind of pause right there and say, what? Who? What man of God and from where? I mean, we were entrenched in the middle of this story about Hophni and Phinehas who were doing all these terrible things and, and you know, he, the dad's confronting them and then all of a sudden out of nowhere, there's this guy. Well, truthfully, we don't know who he is. We never discover his identity. So it's less important who he is and it's more important what he says. And there came a man of God to Eli and said to him, thus says the Lord, did I indeed reveal myself to the house of your fathers were in Egypt and were subject to the house of Pharaoh. Did I choose him out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to go up to the altar and to burn incense, to wear an ephod before me? I gave the house of your father all my offerings by the fire from the people of Israel. Why then do you scorn my sacrifices and my offering that I commanded for my dwelling and my honor? Your sons above me and fatten yourselves on the choices parts of every offering of my people, Israel. He's saying, I selected you and your family to be the priesthood. So why do you honor your sons, allowing them to do what they're doing over honoring me, is what God is saying. 
Therefore, the Lord God of Israel declares, I promise that your house and the house of your father should go in and out uh, before me forever. But now the Lord declares, far be it from me. For those who honor me, I will honor. And those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. Behold, the days are coming when I will cut off your strength and the strength of your father's house so that there will be no old man in your house. Then in distress, you will look with envious eye on the prosperity that shall be bestowed on Israel. And there shall not be an old man in your house. The only one of you whom, whom I shall cut, uh, not cut off from the altar shall be spared to weep his eyes out and to grieve his heart. And all the descendants of your house shall die by the sword. And this shall come upon your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, shall be the sign to you both. Of them shall die on the same day, and I will rise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind, and I will uh, build him a sure house, and he shall go in and out before me, uh, before my anointed forever. And everyone who is left in the house shall come to implore him for a piece of silver or a loaf of bread, and, and shall say, Please put me in the priest's place that I may eat a morsel of bread. God had made this promise. Uh, to Eli and his family, that they would be priests forever. But God's promise came with conditions. God's promise here comes with conditions. Just as, as Lydia might say to me, Daddy, can we go outside and play? I would say, yes, we can go outside and play, but we're going to clean up all these toys in the living room first. So it is a promise. Yes, we can go outside, but there is a condition to the promise. That is, we got to clean up all this junk because we ain't going outside with all this junk in the floor. It is a promise with a condition, and that's exactly what God gave to Eli and his sons, a promise. You will go in and out before my people forever. You will be the priestly family. The condition was that they be faithful, and they failed to be faithful. This was God's curse and God's judgment on them. God judged them. You understand what's happening in this text. God is speaking a curse and a judgment on this family. I'm here to tell you that just like Eli and his sons, judgment is coming. I once introduced myself to a guy, and uh, he said, well, what do you do for work? I said, I'm, I'm a pastor. Uh, and he said, oh, man, y'all don't, don't preach that hellfire and brimstone stuff, do you? I said, I think we do. <laughs> as a matter of fact, as a matter of fact, I know we do. Because I'm here to tell you, again, just like Eli and his sons, judgment is coming. There will be a day where we give an account for what we have done before the Lord. And so for us as Christians, it should invoke joy. Why should the judgment of God invoke joy for Christians? Well, because this means that evil people will be punished. This is a good thing for evil people to be punished. The, the failed justice system that we experience in uh, locks up people who are not criminals and criminals walk the streets. But God's judgment system is not broken. And so people who have done bad things will be punished. Shouldn't Hitler be punished for his evil deeds? We would all agree, yes. And so there is a sense of joy in the coming judgment of God because people who have done wrong will have to give an account. People who have uh, committed Egregious acts will have to give an account, but this should not be where it ends. This should also be very sobering for us. 
It should be incredibly sobering for us, knowing that the judgment of God is coming. The judgment of God is coming upon those who have rejected him. And so our friends, our family, our co-workers, the people who have rejected God will come under his judgment. And so we must plead with them that they take on to themselves the blood of Christ that the judgment be placed on Jesus and not placed on them, that they, that they not suffer the wrath of God, but they allow Jesus to suffer the wrath of God for them. This must be our solemn, our solemn cry. This is what is happening behind the scenes. Do you really see what's happening behind the scenes here? Have you, have you seen the light coming through? Are you guys still awake? Have you seen the light coming through? Maybe you didn't see it. Maybe you didn't see it. Let's go back. Look at, look at, verse, look at verse 26. Let's see if you can see the light shining through this dark time. Now the boy Samuel continued. Listen to it. See if it reminds you of anything. Does this remind you of anyone in particular? Now the boy Samuel continued to grow both in stature and in favor with the Lord and also with man. Does that sound like it? Did, did you read over it too fast? Did you miss it? Did you see the light shining through in this dark text? That, that there is a prophecy that happens at the end of this judgment. The prophecy is that God would remove them and he would set up a new priesthood. And this new priest, this prototype priest would be Samuel. And Samuel grew in wisdom and in stature and in favor before men. And as we dive into the book of Luke, we are told that there was another man who came. There was another priest who came and he grew in wisdom and in stature before the Lord. And this is the God-man Jesus Christ here in the Old Testament, shining through in this dark place, in this dark time in the history of Israel. If you, if you want to know about God quietly and silently working behind the scenes, all you need to do is look at Jesus. All you need to do is to see a simple Galilean peasant with, from parents of no account and of no standing and of no stature, but it was in this God-man that the world would be set free, that the world would be saved, that a new priesthood, someone who could mediate, we need someone to mediate for us. We need someone to intercede for us, do we not? We need someone to come and place a hand on the shoulder of God and place a hand on our shoulder and to mediate and to intercede for us because we are yet lowly sinners who need to be made right with God we need a new priest. If, you, if you're getting anything from this text, is that we, knew, we need a new priesthood. We need Jesus to come, the new priest, the better priest, the great and final high priest who would come and would set up this new priesthood. Hebrews 4, 14. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. Friends, Jesus is our new great high priest who has come to mediate and to intercede for us. Hebrews 7, 23 through 28. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a great high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like the high priest to offer sacrifices daily. Listen to this. First for his own sins and then for those of his people, since he did this once for all, we offered up himself for the law appoints men in their weaknesses, high priest, but the word of the oath which uh, mediates the law, appoints the Son who has been made perfect forever. We have a new and great high priest that is 
Jesus Christ. Here's what this means. We don't need an earthly high priest anymore. Jesus is our great high priest. That's why I'm called a pastor. I am not a priest. You know why you don't need a priest? Because you don't need anyone to stand in between you and God because Jesus has come to do that. I'm a pastor, not a priest. You don't need a priest. You have a great high priest. His name is Jesus. You now have direct access through our great high priest, Jesus. So church family, my final note, and I'm out of your hair. Christians, Christians can find hope in any circumstance because the power of God is at work behind the scenes. I hope you're filled with hope today. I don't, I don't know where you are. I don't know if you're on top of the world. Your marriage is great. Your finances are great. Health is great. Or I don't, I don't know if you're at the bottom of the pit in pain and suffering, struggling with a difficult marriage, struggling with no finances, struggling with cancer, infertility. I don't know if you're on top of the world or deep in the pit, but here's what I do know. You can have hope because God is silently working behind the scenes to bring about his glory and your good. Let's pray. Thanks for listening. Feel free to share the contents of this podcast, but please do not alter it in any way without permission. Please like, follow, and subscribe to us on Facebook or iTunes. Visit gospelcc.com for more content like this. At Gospel Community Church, our mission is to know the Bible, share life with others, and bring hope to our city and the world. Thanks again and have a blessed day.